Without question, COVID has been deadly and destructive. There has been much loss on many different levels over the course of this past year, all sorts of different fallout. But also suspect that we'd probably agree that not every consequence of COVID has been terrible. There's been aspects of things that have changed this past year that we've experienced that we've said, well, maybe that part's not so bad. Um, pulling up into the parking lot of the store and pulling out my phone and pushing a button and out walks the guy with the item that I ordered online. Didn't seem like such a bad thing in some ways. Contactless food delivery. I suspect most of us have had more food beyond pizza than as we have in the past. More food delivered to our homes this past year than we've ever had before. Um, just different things that we've gotten used to. I, I went to DMV this past week, and normally the experience of DMV, I don't know what it's like for you, but I, I drive in the parking lot and I look in the window and I go, I can't spend that kind of time, and I give up and I figure on another day. Now you make appointments, and you go in, and I, it's only 15 minutes after my appointment that I finally got waited on and found out that I didn't have one of the documents that I was supposed to have, and so that was completely on me that I had to reschedule, but nonetheless, there are some, some benefits, but I, I also say that because I, I, I found, at least for me, that there's a very real side of this that has probably fed some of my own desire, sinful at times, for ease and for isolation. That one of the things that this has sort of pushed in us is the sense that, well, I, I don't need to be stuck in crowds, and, and maybe being at home after a while, it might get old, but it's not the worst thing in the world to be, to be stuck at home. And, and, and there is that sort of sense of this isn't that bad in some ways. And, and, and those, those realities are, are things that, that, as an elder team, we've talked about because they've, they've figured into to shepherding and doing life as a local church, as, as we are here this morning, distanced and spaced out with, with many of our brothers and sisters watching at home. There's, there's just been all kinds of obstacles to shepherding God's flock. And, and I have um, had a number of times when I have just felt like I'm doing a miserable job of shepherding, partly because of just the challenges of, of trying to do face-to-face -face, and then just my own inner bent toward, well, this sort of invites pulling back in some respect. At the same time, COVID has made online church flourish. In, in early March, it would have been unimaginable for a lot of believers to ponder that they would spend the next year not gathering with the brothers and sisters in a local church gathering. Uh, let me just say this and be very clear about it. I know that there are many of you who are watching online who, for health reasons, your own health or the health of someone you love, long to be here but cannot for those reasons. And we understand that. But I, I think there are also those out there who have grown comfortable with some of the non-routine of Sunday mornings. I, I, can, I can now watch a sermon of my choosing from a preacher of my choosing who's teaching on a topic of my choosing whenever I choose. Uh, I can download that and watch it and, and cause it to fit my schedule. It's sort of like church has settled in as sort of another online learning option. We're, we're 10 months into this, and, and who knows, maybe three to six more before we get back to some kind of normalcy. And, and like it or not, there's a human tendency. We sort of gravitate toward what works, what seems easy, what feels most comfortable. And so the reality is 
that if, if you do something long enough, you start to feel like, well, this is okay. This is probably the way it is, and it's not so bad. And maybe Sunday mornings or home groups or Bible studies or other church functions are, are good, but, but maybe COVID sort of suggests that they're not as essential as I thought. And I can kind of fit them in my schedule when I see fit. And if, if that's you, I, I just want to say plainly, that is not God's design. That is something that, that we're going to speak to on the importance of the local church. Um, as we've said, this is a, a sermon this week and next that in some ways relies on our church covenant because we've, we've done, done some work on, on our covenant and, and want to focus in on some of the things, why we've made some of the changes, some of the things that we've said in there that church covenant that's online is subtitled in this current one, our commitments to one another in the sight of God. It's on our website. Um, for those of you who are on our email list, you got it uh, earlier this week. If you didn't get it and you're not on our email list, let Stuart or I know. We'll be happy to get you on the email list. We sent out a copy of the, or a link to the existing covenant. Um, if you're a member of the church, you no doubt read it, signed on it when you became a member. Um, this past fall, the, the elder team went to work on that covenant and um, made a draft that substantially adds to and, and in some ways changes that covenant, and also sent out the, the link to that proposed document as well. Hope you've had time to look at it, hopefully read it. Um, if you have not, it is online. However, I'll ask you to wait till after the sermon to read it. Don't do it while uh, during this time, if you would. But COVID and some of the, the drift that it's caused entered into that conversation because we're talking about local church commitments sort of committing to one another in the body, and COVID has done anything but make that much more harder, has, has just been more disruptive to that, and so that entered into it. And then the other issue that for the elder team as, as we took this up was just this long-standing sense that our current church covenant lacked something. Wasn't wrong, wasn't bad, but was kind of lopsided. And let me express that in, in this way. When you think of a covenant, there's usually two parts to it. There's sort of the opening section, preamble kind of piece that that's where the the whereas's are sort of the statements of fact this is these are the underlying assumptions that we're taking into account and then the bottom half of the covenant is sort of the resolutions or the pledges if you will because of these things we will do these things this is our response to to that preamble portion so just to use, uh, if, if you've ever read resolutions that, that Congress puts forward, that the House of Representatives puts forward, used to be that naming post office, you know, was the big thing. And so you'd have a, a long resolution about whereas, you know, John Smith was this wonderful guy and all the things he did, and therefore we do that. Or whereas vehicular accidents are dangerous, and wearing, whereas wearing seatbelts makes them more safe and less people die, then therefore, then be it resolved, and then you get to the we will do this now in light of that. Well, um, our existing church covenant has a strong preamble, good statements of, of what we believe, what we hold to about the local church and its importance, but it felt lopsided in that it was kind of weak on the statements of what we're actually committing to, what we're actually saying that as, as covenant members together, we are going to do these things as a body of believers in support and encouragement of each other and as part of the local church. And so that's what we started to look at, and that's what we did some revising to and proposing. It would be like a marriage ceremony where 
There was an excellent job done of explaining what marriage is, biblical marriage, and the importance of marriage, and all of these things, and then leaving out the vow portion of the ceremony. We'd know something was missing if there wasn't that portion where they said, you know, by God's grace, we, we will love, honor, cherish, respect, serve one another till death do us part, that, that portion that's so important in, in stating those vows. It's that portion of the covenant that we mostly worked on. And so what I want to do this morning and, and on into next week is help you see from Scripture why this is important, not just as a defense of a document. The church covenant is important. We believe it's an important statement for a local church. It's an important thing that members do, but it is a document. It is a man-made document. What I, what I really hope to do even more than that is renew, invigorate your passion, your love for the local church. It is to, to call us together to just continue to embrace and love the local church. Some of you are at a, some of you are military, you'll, you'll move on from here at some point. Some of you are younger and you'll go off to college at some point. Some of you just go through changes in life. And, and, and it's those sorts of changes that, that then challenge commitment to a local church, because even if we were in one that we really liked, others don't maybe feel, feel quite the same, and we can sort of drift. And, and I, I just, I, I want to exhort you from Scripture on God's design of the church and our love that we should have and our commitment that we should have to the local church and serving there and being part of it. Um, the, the covenant format that, that I described to you, sort of preamble, and then the commitments really follows a biblical model. It's, it's what you hear us say a lot in, in teaching and preaching, sort of the indicative imperative sort of format. Indicatives being statements of fact, imperatives being commands or instructions on the basis of that fact. An indicative says, um, God has created the heavens and the earth. God loved the world. God gave his son. Uh, Jesus Christ died on the cross and he rose again. All biblical statements of fact of what God has done. The imperative would be the uh, Philippian jailer saying to Paul, what must I do to be saved? And he replies and says, repent and, and be saved. Repent, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you shall be saved. In Acts 16, 31, since you, we are sinners, we need to turn to Christ and believe in Christ. And so there's the imperative. So to use that covenant language, whereas man has fallen in sin, in need of a savior, whereas God sent his son, whereas Jesus Christ lived a perfect life and died and rose again, and all the elements of the gospel. Therefore, we respond with repentance and faith, believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. So here's the point then as it relates to, to all of the changes that we've proposed and, and, and where this is going. You may have looked at the proposed language. And one of the things that may have struck you as you looked at the Old Covenant compared to the New Covenant is all of the, the, the we will statements that we've put in the proposed document. There's, by my count, 14 statements that lead in with we will. We will do this. We will commit to that. We will seek to resist sin. We will show Christian love and genuine forgiveness toward others. We will be faithful stewards of our time and talents and finances. All of that may tempt you to see that as sort of a daunting document now, that it just sort of puts on a, a heavy load of expectations. And that's why I want to go back to Scripture and show you why we think they're important for us as elders, for all of us as members of this body, for all of us together in our commitment to one another. Those we will statements put a, 
put a burden of proof, if you will, on the assumptions behind them, uh, on the indicatives behind them, the statements of fact, the validity of the we wills rests on the reality of what we believe God has already done in terms of saving us and establishing this local church and what he's accomplishing in that. And so with all of that, we're going to start in Ephesians and Ephesians chapter one for this morning. Ephesians chapter one, I'm going to walk through just sort of um, survey form, just several things in Ephesians as they relate not only to our salvation, but to our engagement with the local church. You know, Ephesians chapter one starts with taking us back to before the creation of the heavens and the earth, before the universe, God ordains this plan to redeem fallen man to save sinners. And he does so as it describes there by, by choosing, predestining, adopting. And then verse six of Ephesians chapter one says he does this for the praise of his glorious grace. There's this emphasis on him doing this for his glory. It goes on in the next few verses and describes how God redeemed and forgave sinners and gives them an eternal hope in Jesus. Verse 12, so that we would be to the praise of his glory. He continues to want to emphasize the purpose in God doing this. And then verse 13, God seals us with the spirit as his possession. And again, verse 14, to the praise of his glory. And so all of this, God designing this plan of redemption that it would bring glory back to him, that he would save a people who would respond with gratitude, but also displaying his grace and his goodness. It's all done, verse 20, it says, through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Pick up with me in verse 22 at the end of Ephesians 1. And he, that is the Father, put all things under his feet, that is the Son. So, and he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. God's great work of redemption is accomplished through Jesus Christ, who now has risen and ascended and dwells in heaven and is Lord over all. God the Father places all things under his dominion, but he also stresses the fact that the supremacy of Jesus Christ has a particular benefit for one thing in particular, says there in verse 22. He put all things under his feet and gave him, gave him as head over all things to what? To the church, which is his body. And so he introduces here, after a passage of scripture that has reveled in God choosing you, adopting you, forgiving you, the saving of individuals, he pulls this all together with the supremacy of Christ in all of these things is for the benefit of the church. All of these blessings that, that chapter one has unfolded all describe things that God has bestowed on, on God's people. So we can read chapter one and we can come away from that and go, I I have been adopted, I have been redeemed, I have been forgiven, I am sealed by God's Spirit. But the fact that Jesus is Savior and Lord also has this corporate element to it that Paul brings in when he describes the church. The saving work of Christ is a blessing for all individuals who have been redeemed, but it has also joined us together into the body of Christ, into his church. The corporate part of this is exceedingly important. Paul's going to go on in chapter 2 and talk about life apart from Christ. 
And so in verse 11, therefore remember of chapter 2, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is the circumcision. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, verse 12, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. The, the whole picture that Paul's wanting them to see is, is this picture of alienation and separation and isolation apart from Christ, you are alone. For as much as the world has gatherings and activities and they long for that, that place where everybody knows your name, to use the old TV show line, that there's still that sense of separation and isolation that is only met in Christ. Because when he gets further on in the chapter, he talks about believers being joined to the body. If you look at verse 19, now talking about what's happened through Christ. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. What a difference. You go from the beginning of that section and you are alienated and you are separated and you are without God to this ending where he says, and you are now being brought together into a family, a household of God that is being built by Christ. The two opening lines of our church covenant are unchanged, both in the old and the proposed. And they say, believing that the church of Jesus Christ is the very household of God on earth and believing that Jesus Christ is the foundation and chief cornerstone and master builder of his church. Those, those statements derive their biblical meaning from right here in Ephesians chapter 2, where it says that you who were separated and isolated are now part of a family. You are now joined together into this community of believers who are being built together as the household of God with Christ as cornerstone and as foundation. It's important for us to understand we talk about the church and, and the New Testament descriptions of the church. There is the universal sense, believers of all time, the saints who have gone before us, those who will come after us, who we will spend eternity in heaven with. But that church is expressed in its visible form in local churches, just like the church at Ephesus, just like the believers there understood that when Paul's talking about the church, he's not simply talking about the body of all believers, but he's talking about this corporate gathering of believers in Ephesus who have been called from out of the world and now belong to Christ. It's so interesting that the passage that Stuart read at the beginning from 1 Peter, where it speaks of us as exiles, and, and here he describes us as, as now sort of losing that alien status that was at the beginning of that section. It's two different senses. There's the sense from the world that, that we are now separated unto Christ, and now as a body of believers, we are joined together so that we are part of a community where we are not aliens to one another. We are separated from out of the world and brought into the church where we are part of a corporate community together. And so he's describing for them here just the sweet benefits of life in the local church, of being built together in this community. In chapter 3, verse 10, it speaks of the wisdom of God. Look at um, verse, uh, verse 10 of chapter 3. So that the church, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. 
we get to understand what he means by rulers and authorities in the heavenly places when we get to chapter 6 and he's talking about spiritual warfare and he speaks of rulers and authorities and, and those who war against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places that he'll refer to in chapter 6. But what he's, so then what he's saying here in, in chapter 3 is even, even the supernatural enemies of God witness the church and they see the undeniable wisdom of God. Through the work of Jesus Christ, they see something in the church that is inexplicable to the world. And, and we've already gotten a sense for that from chapter 2 when he's talking about, talking about bringing Jews and Gentiles together. The, the diversity, the unity of the church, the bringing together of different people from every tongue and tribe and nation is confounding to even the, the supernatural opponents of the gospel of Jesus Christ because it displays his wisdom. But all that says that, that we, as a local church, are the, are the sort of telescope that magnifies that. We, we show that off, and, and, and not only to the, the spiritual forces that oppose God, but, but you think of the Ephesians and the fact that they're facing persecution. The letters to the churches in Revelation 2 will speak of the suffering they were under. And, and, and Paul is reminding them that if the spiritual forces in the heavenlies, if they see God's wisdom and his power at work through you, imagine how much more those around us, the earthly authorities, who are nothing in comparison. And we display that. We show God's wisdom in that way by how we live out life as a local church. We are God's instrument to declare the greatness of the gospel to the nations. As a local church here in Lorton, we have a responsibility in this community to be a, an outpost, an, an embassy of the king, to, to demonstrate what it is to follow Christ and to see Christ lived out through his people. Likewise, one other reference here, just in these early chapters. In chapter 2, familiar verses, 8 and 9, for by grace you've been saved through faith, not of your own doing, gift of God. But then verse 10 is the one I want you to see. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. God saves us as individuals, chosen, adopted, forgiven, sealed, takes us as individuals, saves us, brings us then into this body, and, and, and now emphasizes this otherness to our existence. Uh, you were far off. You were alienated. You were without hope in the world, without God in the world. Now you are part of this body, and you have been created for good works. The good works God has prepared for us to walk in do not exist in a vacuum. We can't do these in isolation. We can, we can worship we can praise, we can certainly honor God with our individual lives, and we should with our thoughts and, and on our own, personally, individually. But, but the reality is here, when he's talking about that you've been created, made for good works, he's talking about things that we do in service to others and caring for others. Jesus teaches this. Jesus explains in Matthew 5, 16, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. They're, they're, they're visible manifestations of the heart change. They're acts of service and love towards others. Jesus said it of his own works, this healings of the sick and his casting out of demons. He calls these good works that were seen by the Jewish religious leaders. They were evident to them. 
Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 5 says some men, their, their sins are just so blatantly out there in front of them. Their sinfulness and their evil is so evident. But then he says, likewise also, deeds that are good are conspicuous, ESV uses, quite evident. It's just another way of saying it. Their, their good works will not remain hidden. They are seen because they are acts of service and care for others. Um, we have been saved as individual believers, so that we can now be part of Christ's body where we have the privilege of serving one another, of, of doing the good works Christ has prepared beforehand for us to care for one another and to show his grace and love towards others. Ephesians has this, this sort of breakdown where it's the, the first half, very much statement of all of these truths. This is what God has done. This is what God has created for. And then it transitions. But he ends, Ephesians chapter 3 ends the first section, and Paul finishes it by praying in verse 20. Ephesians 3 verse 20. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory where? In the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. There it is again. Paul's concluding prayer to this opening preamble is that believers would grasp these truths that God has saved them as individuals but now brought them into a community. And in that church is where they are able to bring great glory to God with their lives as they serve one another. And, and, and it's at this point now that Paul transitions. He makes this sort of, um, that we get a chapter break in our translations. Paul didn't use verse numbers or chapter breaks, but there's really a turning point now. We, we move now from the statements of fact, the indicatives, this is how you were saved. This is what he did. This is how you were brought into a church. This is what God's doing through this church to bring glory to himself. And we now move to here are then the commitments that you and I should, should carry out in believing those initial assumptions. And so look at chapter 4, verse 1. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Since you believe that God has saved you through His Son, Jesus Christ, and through His death and resurrection, this Son who manifested gentleness and humility and love and grace, you now walk in a manner worthy of your calling. The interesting thing about all those attributes he mentions there is you, you don't grow in those in a vacuum, apart from dealing with other people. Humility does not, does not nurture, get nurtured in our lives without rubbing up against other people. Patience certainly does not grow in us without the interaction with other people. Gentleness. I, can't, I, I can be gentle to myself, but, but clearly if I'm going to grow in gentleness, it's going to be because I'm being more gentle toward people around me and demonstrating gentleness. All of this is, is in this corporate sort of context that humility, gentleness, patience, and bearing with one another in love. He's now saying the therefore in all of this is that you would grow together as a as a body, that you would interact in this way with each other with gentleness and patience and love. Our, our church covenant, albeit an imperfect document, strives to, to follow this sort of pattern, just like we see it perfectly in Ephesians. Important beliefs is what we fundamentally hold to about the church, 
why it's there, what, what its purpose is, therefore, how we ought to live in light of that. And that's then the, the we will statements. If we understand the importance of what God is doing, what he has established in the local church, then we will understand all of the, the New Testament one another commands to serve and honor and care for one another and weep with one another and come alongside one another. And, and, and that's really what, what helps us to see that what, what God has done, since he has done this to save us, therefore, be it resolved, if you will, that as believers in Jesus Christ, we will, comes that sort of list of commitments that we've included there in the, uh, in the covenant. We're, we're trying to follow this sort of pattern. Um, if you've read it, let me just call you back for just a moment to the proposed covenant. If you've read it, there's, there's two things, particularly in the last two-thirds of it. I just want to make sure that you've, you've noticed the one is the transitional statement, where we go from the believing, believing, understanding, believing to the, the, the sort of pivot point. And it's, it's said this way, and, and this is what we are proposing in it. It's slightly different wording than what's been in there before. We do now, before God and through the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit, willingly and joyfully enter into covenant with other covenant members of this local church, Grace Bible Church of Lorton. Again, it's different wording than in the current covenant, but I, I want to call your attention to one phrase in particular and, and underlined it there on your slide, and that is through the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit. All of the the wills, all of the we wills, I should say, the will, there we got a little King James in there. All of the we wills in, in the following statements, all 14 of those, depend on, on this premise that, that, that otherwise, they're, they're, just, they're just sort of behavioral pledges. It, the we wills without this are no different than New Year's resolutions. I'm going to do this. I'm going to exercise. I'm going to eat less. I'm going to whatever. And, and apart from the, the kindness of God and his empowering presence, it's not going to happen. And, and so that, that statement, we think, as an elder team, is crucial and, and, and needs to be understood because none of the rest happens apart from God's work in us, his spirit enabling us to do these things so that we can commit to sacrificial living and caring for one another and serving one another because we believe that God's spirit can enable us to do that. So these statements are not about adding some unbearable load to your life or calling you to some impossible task. These are statements that, as we've thought this through as an elder team, we long to embrace ourselves and, and want to do that as brothers and sisters in Christ in our commitments to one another. So I um, want you to notice that transition statement, but then, of course, that leads into the other thing you probably noticed again, which is all the we wills, but we'll come back to those. Let, let's make this transition. Last few minutes of our time this morning. Um, I want to I move from the preamble to why all of the we wills I have four, and I'm only going to give you one this morning. That's why this became a, a, a two-parter. My, uh, my gratitude to Stuart. We had a good talk through this this week as we were talking through the Ephesians passage and just how rich the first three chapters are. And that's what made me land there and spend more time there than I had initially intended to go back to this preamble part. But I want to move forward with four of the reasons why then these we will statements come up, and they're all biblical reasons, and one of them is from here in Ephesians. So this morning, I'm just going to deal with that one, and then we'll come back and hit the other three next week. But just to outline it for you, we are called to grow in our commitment to and passion for the local church because 
that has been designed by God. First one we'll hit this morning. Commanded by Jesus, modeled by the New Testament church, and made for our blessing. Just the first one briefly. Ephesians 4. It's the turning point now. We've been reminded of who we are in Christ, the blessings we have in the community. Four now turns to the practical instruction. This then is how you live. This is how you speak to one another. This is how husbands and wives interact. This is how families deal with one another. This is how you are as an employee or employer. This is all the ways that you connect with one another. All fills up the, the rest of the book of Ephesians. And the immediate consequence that Paul explains is the one that we just read at the beginning of chapter four. We are now brought into this community in which we grow in gentleness and patience and humility and love toward one another because, verse 4 says, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. He immediately stresses that this, this patience and humility and gentleness is because we are part of a body. There, there's no um, going off and saying, I don't, I don't want to be part of the Christian community. If you belong to Jesus Christ, you are part of this body. And that body is expressed in local churches. And that's where we are called to this. And so if you'll drop down to verse 11, I just want to read one last section here as we talk about how this, how this shows God's design in all of this. Verse 11, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, teachers, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love we are to grow up in every way into him who is at the head into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. The, the we will statements in our church document, are, are, are necessitated, we believe, by God's design for the church. Verse 12 describes this design as building up the body of Christ. God has designed that, that together, corporately, we are functioning with each other in such a way as to be growing the whole body together, as to be encouraging and exhorting one another. And, and he'll use this body imagery. We already saw it in chapter 1 where he introduced it. He comes back to it again in chapter 5 when he speaks to husbands about living with their wives and says Christ is the head of the church, his body. And then in verse 29, how, how we nourish and cherish, how Christ nourishes and cherishes the church, which he says is his body body. And so he's using this continued body analogy, and it comes up throughout the New Testament as a description of a community that is completely joined together with every part having a function, might differ from the other parts, but together they're all for the common good to build up into the head, which is Christ Jesus, to build up into to his likeness. That's why Ephesians 4.15 says, Christ is the head of the body, in which are held together by, it's held together by every joint with which it's equipped, each part working properly, making the body grow so it builds itself up in love. It's a glorious picture 
of the idea that we are together in this for the mutual benefit of, of the body. It's 1 Corinthians 12 will spell out the same kind of design of this local church as an intimate assembly of, of people all joined together on the same basis. There's not executive memberships and junior memberships. There is faith in Christ. There is turning from sin. We all come on the same basis. We all humbly are broken before the cross of Jesus Christ. He has given us life and forgiven us, and he has brought us into this community. And his design now is that together we grow and, and cause the body to grow. And that's why he says in this d description of the design that he gives to the church, shepherds, teachers, those who proclaim God's truth for the purpose of helping the body to grow in maturity. Through the ministry of God's word, empowered by God's spirit, individual Christians are brought together into an environment in which they grow to maturity and help each other to grow to maturity so that the body grows. The reality, as he says here in chapter 4, is there are false teachers and wrong doctrines out there. God's design is that the local church be a gathering place where I, I come and I am exhorted and we hold fast to the word and to its counsel and, and, and we sit under its teaching. We gather here on Sundays and, and make the, the focal point, the preaching of the word, because we believe that's God's design, that it is the, the preached word that ultimately God uses in the life of the community to help us exhort and encourage one another. Ephesians 4 just lays out this design of individual believers committed to a local church, to a place where they go, they hear God's word, they speak God's word, they exhort others in God's word, they receive exhortation, they receive correction, they receive counsel from God's word, because that's what we do in community. This is where we gather to do that. And that's one of the reasons, just to add to the, the, our understanding of the, the church covenant, one of the reasons why we've stressed in there that there is a commitment to a small groups ministry, that that's one of the pieces that we've identified in, in the proposed covenant that what we would call home groups. One of the ways that you and I strengthen our understanding of God's word, one of the ways we enhance our meditation on God's word and obedience to it is by doing life together. It's by sharing in our study of the word together. It's by exhorting and, and challenging one another. It, it, home groups becomes that setting in which you, you come and you sit in a room and you realize, I'm not the only broken person here. Um, that, that Ideally, that's the environment where the, the sort of transparency and honesty develops that goes beyond just coming together on Sunday mornings and where we're able to lay out the places where we're struggling to obey God. And some brother or sister who's had that same struggle is able to, to speak from Scripture about how, how it helped them in this area. And, and we are able to, to grow up together into him who is the head. And it's that kind of close-knit help and accountability that is impossible if you try to go it alone. If your commitment to the, if there is no commitment to the local church or if the commitment is limited to you know, an hour and 15 minutes on Sunday morning, I'll come and, and get what I need, and, and that's it. That, that's why we, we try to, to stress in here that this is, there's more to it than this. The aim of a local church should be that we don't leave people behind, that we're all coming together and growing together into maturity in Christ's likeness and assisting each other. And, and, and so that accountability and that dependency of the small group is something that we think is really important. I'll just finish again with coming back to verse 16, from whom the whole body 
joined and held together by every joint, every part with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Let me just leave you with some questions. As you meditate on this this week, how are you living out that sense of being joined to the body? I want you to be just as practical as you can as you think about it. How, how is my joining to the body expressed in daily life in terms of praying for my fellow saints, engaging with my fellow saints, t- touching base with them during the week, communicating, sharing my needs and burdens with them? How is that being expressed? How are you, how are you working to cause the body to grow? If that's our mutual mandate is that we together are helping this local body of believers to grow into the image of Christ, how is God using me to help others grow? How am I being available to serve others? And then I would just end with how privileged we are to be a part of Christ's church, his body. Uh, that, that, not so much a question as much as something that we should just revel in. That God has put us in his body, whether it is here at Grace, and I, I, I feel a particular heartbeat for this community here, but certainly we are blessed with lots of other great local churches in this area and around the world. But what a blessing it is to be part of a community where Believers are loving and serving one another. Let's press on in doing that. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for sending your son to rescue us. Lord, we've seen in Ephesians 2 just the the utter hopelessness and despair and sense of loneliness that stands outside of the gospel that is not drawn together and brought into the body of Christ. And, and Lord, for those of us who are trusting in Christ, we, we are grateful that it is by your grace that you have brought us into a body of believers to be loved and served and to give back to them love and service. Father, I pray if there's anyone listening this morning who is not trusting in Christ alone or who has come to faith in Christ and is, is struggling in a commitment to the local church, sees the local church as a place of hypocrites, perhaps. Pray, Lord, that even this day, by your grace, you would have used your word to show that, yes, we are. We are struggling, broken people who battle with sin, with temptation, with our flesh, and who all the more desperately need help that can only come through your means, through your presence, the power of your spirit, and through your people that you've surrounded us with. Thank you that in them we find this community in which we can, we can be loved and cherish one another. Help us, help Grace Bible Church, Lord, as we go into this new year. Hard to know what at all we will face, what obstacles, what challenges to unity, what challenges to patience and gentleness, what obstacles will come our way, what sicknesses, what problems. And so we we plead with you from the outset that you would be at work in us, transforming us by your grace to be gentle and kind and compassionate and humble with each other and patient and deferring to one another and striving to be built together into a community where we serve side by side with each other. And we pray that you would use this church in ways that we can't even begin to imagine immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine in our community, in this region, 
that you would, by your grace, empower us to serve you well and to be a place that would display the life and love and sacrifice and service of Jesus Christ in all that we do. It's in his name we pray. Amen.